0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. It's uh, my good self, Panel Beater here in the studio with Dr. Sharma. Good morning, Dr. Sharma. Good morning to you. How's your health and well-being, Dr. Sharma? Uh, it's, uh, questionable, uh,
1: questionable. Well, you, know, you know what, okay, so it's been an extremely busy week for me, uh-huh. uh, medical work, I uh, go, go far away, you, you spotted, are you, are you fringing it? I'm indeed fringing it, last night was opening night, <laughs> How'd go? and, um, it went well. It was one of those classic things where, you know, you you, you look at the duck and it's floating gracefully and <laughs> underneath the water, shitload of paddling happening. Yeah, really? Yeah. Um, What's the vibe like? Well, oh, the, the Fringe is going well. I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, it's back after a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, post-COVID, you know, yeah. people are, are really keen to go and attend. and uh, We're seeing that not just in the numbers of people who are attending our show, but just you can see it on people's faces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I went to a show um, uh, Yeah, last Friday, I think it was. Last Friday, yeah, and it was. It was just really good to see people out and about. And um, it was in the, the car park of the Queen Victoria Market. There's a, they've set up the Spiegel tent there.
1: Amazing.
0: Nice. And yeah, yeah, lots of people out and about with smiles on their faces, as you say, after a couple of years. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? i just lost my train of well, thought. Well, I was going to ask you. How's your health? <laughs> I, I have got a terrible I've, – I've, I've fallen victim to the great sins of our age, Dr. Sharma, mm. and that sin being sitting at a desk in front of a computer too long. And I've got the most painful hip on planet Earth at the moment.
1: Is it the classic hip flexor that we all talk about?
0: I think it might be. I, I have yet to go and seek professional advice. You know what?
1: Go get professional <laughs> advice because if you, if all you do is, is read social media, and there is so much to be uh, on TikTok and Instagram about hip flexors, all you'll ever see is, you know, here is 8 million stretches. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what the advice is of the professionals because no, that's where you no, should no. go, but the, the way that they explained, as we say, the pathophysiology of this kind of
0: pain, you go, there is so much more to it than just stretching it out. It's really interesting you say that because one, <laughs> like, you know, being the curious nerd that I am, I'm learning so much about my own anatomy with this and just the fact that when I say to you, as I just did, then I've got a sore hip. Actually, no, I realise how my, all these bones and uh, all these uh, muscles and tendons, right? So I... have have, like, pain that at various points starts just... Um, right at the bottom of the hamstring below the knee and at times goes right up uh, to mid back you know right through the lower back and I'm just realising the relationship between everything that goes on in that part of the anatomy Yeah,
1: everything from referred pain that you feel at one point but it actually is originating another to the fact that you can have a problem at the point at which you've got the pain but that's happening because of a weakness somewhere else yeah uh, so the physios are the experts the evidence based experts in diagnosing all that So that's excellent what
0: I'll yeah I'll, I'll, I'll go and get myself sorted and and um, somebody brought to my attention, and, and I'll share it with others who may have also been in the dark like me, that we can actually get rebated physio with a GP referral.
1: That's right. So if you get, um, uh, if a you, GP does a care plan and for, does specific forms, uh, that uh, and it's all to do with what the chronic medical conditions you've got and how many other practitioners uh, that you need to see. So the government has a special scheme where you will get up to uh, five rebated visits to various allied health professionals, and that includes physiotherapists. So mm. that, that makes things a bit more accessible for people.
0: But you have to get a GP's referral, and it has to be determined that it's um, critical and ongoing. That, that's the criteria, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: that's exactly yeah. So the idea is that it is for chronic, chronic, ongoing yeah. things, not just a one-off. Yes,
0: I should be able to meet that uh, that evidentiary requirement. Yeah, I, I, I won't make look that call my live on radio, <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah, but th- this is the idea, right? For things that are not just going to be, you know, a, a one one appointment fix. Yeah. Uh, that that's the idea, and musculoskeletal things often are often take at least three months to resolve. Well, in all
0: honesty, um, I'm such a bad patient that this has actually been going on a while. I've been, I have I have enough days where I don't feel anything that I tell myself, oh, it's gone now. I <laughs> we oh, all play that game, don't we, yeah. when it comes to pain? Yeah, yeah, exactly, it's a horror. Hey, just um, very quickly, let's pick up on a um, topic that we've addressed um, um, previously, and that is GPs and where we're at. I'm, we, we've been talking about this most of the year in one form or another. In honour of GP coming there. Yeah. Um, the, um, um, yeah, we've been touching on GP workforce uh, one way or another all, all year. And it is, I'm pleased to say, although the circumstances are sorry, I'm, I'm pleased to say there's more and more attention. And we're really seeing increased general population awareness of how critical. Um, GP shortages yeah. and attrition and retention rates are.
1: It, yeah, so fascinating thing is that if I'll do events all throughout the year, and people ask me what work is like, and I'll go, "Oh, general practice is a bit of a problem," and often people used to go, "Oh, really." And I did an event last week and I mentioned general practice and everyone, oh yeah, we know that's going to <laughs> yeah. down the toilet. Because uh, there have been multiple um, opinion pieces and, and uh, just you know, good bit, bits of news reporting uh, just showing the the general public how dire the situation is. So there is some awareness, so we hope that is... The the first hint of a solution arriving. Yeah, uh, yeah. As we say, first step is to recognise the problem. I hope
0: so. I hope so. And that actually uh, leads us to draw attention to one of our um, guests uh, for today. We'll be having a chat with the uh, CEO of um, ACN, Australian College of Nursing, um, uh, Kylie Ward, who will be in to talk to us about their own workforce shortages in nursing and there's a lot of parallel um in what uh nursing uh sector uh, right across the board um nurses ranging from hospital base to clinic base to home care the, the whole the whole sector is facing a a really dramatic um shortage in workforce so we're looking forward to speaking uh with kylie you've also got a bit of a guest uh that's gonna yeah so excited me about too. this
1: these, these are the kind of conversations that make me proud to be part of the uh, the Triple R family, because uh, really do we get to have these discussions in this detail. What I'm talking about is a medication, Molnupiravir. It is an antiviral drug that uh, was you know, introduced just recently uh, to treat people with COVID in order to keep them out of hospital and prevent deaths. Uh, big trials come out just a few days ago showing that it does not work in the way it was promised. And we have the man who called this out Nine months ago. Yeah. Uh, medical researcher and doctor Kyle Sheldrick will be joining us very shortly.
0: Yeah, really look forward to hearing what uh, Kyle has... As you say, yeah, I, I my ears and eyes pricked months ago when he started talking about it um, on the socials. Um, and then uh, then this news of the past week uh, has really caught our attention. Looking forward to that. And at the end of the show, tail end of the show, um, we'll be going with Pop Cozy Health. And... Um, did you enjoy your morning coffee uh, yet? Oh yeah, yeah, did. you did. Yeah, did you have a glass of urine to wash it down? Uh, not today. Yeah. No. Well, today we'll be talking about urine therapy. Okay. Yeah, a bit of, uh, <laughs> a bit, of uh, bit of contention around uh, its merits or not. <laughs> um, well, you know, Bear Gryllis, uh, apparently, you know, big fan. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is. I mean, I'd love to know
1: if there is a single possible use. In, in the universe, and I mean, Bear Grylls doing it on, on his show, like, I'd love to see the justification. Well, that.
0: that's right, that's right. My, my association with it, my, um, my uh, late uh, grandfather, um, <laughs> I'll take his word for it, he reckons he drank his own um, in North Africa during the war. Yes, yes, that was a that was a sit on uh, pops. Get a, get a war story moment. But you know, you know what? I've, I've got a feeling the
1: context in which we're going to be discussing today is not going to be wars no. and bare grills no. and extreme situations.
0: No. Someone's going to someone's going to be doing it on their Instagram reel. We're like going that. to take a look at what or the what the what is this thing called urine therapy, or otherwise known as Eurotherapy, um, later on in the show.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'm so happy to be talking about this story and it's been making a lot of waves. You see, a COVID-19 antiviral medication uh, called Molnupiravir, also the brand name Legevrio, uh, was, has been used in Australia extensively throughout for COVID for the last year. The idea was that it's going to reduce the chances of you needing hospital if you get COVID-19 or dying if you get COVID-19. But uh, a new study has come out with preliminary studies suggesting that it actually works no better than than placebo and that's what brings us to our guest because although these findings have come now nine months ago uh, he called this out and ran the uh, the alarm bells and he's been uh, proven very prophetic Uh, so we're so glad to be joined by Dr Kyle Sheldrick medical doctor and researcher at UNSW Kyle welcome thank you thanks for having me Kyle pretty extraordinary story Uh, so Back in January, uh, you made the call on social media. You, you had read the, the preliminary research at that point. I'm just going to quote your words from your tweet uh, because it's, yep. it's pretty bold stuff. You said, I do not believe review should have been approved. And you're talking about approval in Australia, presumably. An analysis yeah. from my colleagues in the UK, USA, Canada and Australia is currently undergoing peer review, explaining why we do not believe the evidence basis is sufficient and the results of the move-out um, trial are unreliable this, this is a, a huge statement to make not just in the tweet but of course the paper you and your team had written bring us up to that point like the, the you, you hear of course in late 2021 this drug is being developed Australia places large orders it's, it's getting approved by the TGA walk us through from the first time you've read, you heard about this drug to what led you to write something like this sure So at that point in the pandemic,
2: anyone who was involved even slightly in infectious diseases research around COVID-19 was talking to each other. So I had actually already been talking to my co-authors. So Ed Mills and um, Christian Thorland from uh, Canada ran one of the largest independent trials called TOGETHER and talking about uh, some of the repurposed drugs in there. Andrew Hill, very involved in ivermectin research. And we were meeting regularly and we were talking just casually about some of the other research that was coming out. And we all independently looked at this review data and said there are concerns here. And in fact, there were a lot of concerns. All of us had slightly different things, but the biggest thing for me was that the drug appeared to have stopped working halfway through the trial. Uh, If you looked at the results of the drug before the interim analysis, so that's where they, you know, halfway through, check, is the drug working? It was really, really positive. If you have a look at patients recruited in the second half of the drug company's trial, move out, they actually did slightly worse. Not significantly, but the drug had clearly stopped working completely halfway through the trial.
1: This—I mean—this sounds bizarre. Why would uh, a drug work through halfway through the trial and then stop working? Is this typical? Uh, no,
2: and we—you know—we've got a lot of experience between our authorship group, and we had never seen anything like this before. My personal feeling is: I think it's probably variant dependent. I think it worked very well to treat a variant that has since died out.
1: Right. So it becomes obvious to you and your team through these communications at this point, you you put out your paper, you, you make yep. this statement, this is early January uh, this year. What happens then? I mean, you're ringing the alarm bells, presumably someone's yep. listening. I, you know, I saw your tweet. What happens from that yep. point onwards? Uh, well, not a lot, um, to be honest, uh, for about
2: nine months. And that didn't surprise me terribly. So we published our concerns in a couple of places. We published a long one in... American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. We published a shorter one in the New England Journal of Medicine, which the authors from the drug company trial responded to, um, saying, you know, this is incredibly unusual and should be highly concerning. But nothing really happened because everyone was waiting for this trial called Panoramic to come out. And there were some red flags pretty early on that this was not going to give an expected result. So one of those is that Panoramic originally said they would recruit about 10,000 people. And we just kept watching the counter tick up and go, okay, well, it's fully recruited back in April. And then, okay, well, it's, you know, now it's 15,000, now it's 20,000. And that usually in a trial means there's a lower rate of events than they were expecting because they were expecting about 3% of people to go to hospital. And we know that overall a little bit less than 1% of people did. And that's probably because this was a really highly vaccinated population with a different variant.
1: Now, just to be clear, what you're talking about here is the confirmatory trial. So the first trial, as you said, um, it seemed like the drug stopped working halfway through. You you, you ring the the alarm bells. The second half of the the trial, it clearly does not look like the drug is working, and yet no No. one does anything. But what is happening in the background is this next confirmatory large trial with not too many uh, events happening. Uh, so, yep. so, so this trial, uh, that was the findings of this was released just a, a few weeks ago, right? Yep, uh, about one week ago now, yeah. Okay. What's been the response to this confirmatory trial as opposed to the first one, which, you know, no one did anything off the back of? Well, I think there have been two completely different responses. Uh, there's been the response
2: from the scientific and medical community who have, I think, been very concerned by this. There's a lot of doctors out there who will have prescribed a lot of this drug. Uh, and research scientists in infectious diseases, all of whom have looked at this and gone sort of, wow, this is very concerning. And then on the other half, um, you've had the response from the regulators, which has been largely silent. So the FDA in America, the TGA in Australia, there hasn't really been any response. There's just been a sort of silence, like it hasn't happened.
1: This, It's really concerning hearing about this uh, because... It was obvious to you all the way back then uh, and your team, yeah. it's now clearly plainly obvious to, 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 to not just uh, people with a special interest in this like you, but a lot of medical doctors. The regulators, are, the, are we just saying this, are they very slow to act? What do you think are the possible incentives and deterrents for them to, to not act? Uh, I mean, the yeah. therapeutic guideline, uh, the, the TGA in Australia hasn't really commented much on this yet. What do you think is going on there? I know I'm kind of asking you to speculate here, but we're yeah. we trying to get an understanding of why these things happen.
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is that obviously I disagreed with the decision the TGA made. I was very clear in public about that. But I don't think their decision at the time was indefensible because, it, you know, I balance it differently. But if Panoramic had come out and said, you know what, that second half of the trial was an aberration, this drug is great, it stops people from dying by about three quarters and they hadn't approved it for nine months, then there would be a lot of deaths on the TGA's head. So I've got a lot of sympathy for them. The other thing about the TGA in particular is they're one of the most transparent regulators out there. They publish these OZPARs when they approve drugs, and so we know that they noticed this this, uh, change in the results and the difference between countries, and they even speculated back in January when they approved it that this might actually be that it treats different variants differently, despite what the drug company says. They- I, yeah, in terms of going forward uh, and why they haven't commented on it, I don't know. It might be that they're trying to confirm the results themselves. It might be any number of things. You know, regulators are sort of down by the law and legal processes and go a bit slower, but I do hope that they will come out and comment on this sometime soon.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Kyle Sheldrick about the COVID-19 antiviral drug peer review, which just last week, uh, last tr- data from last trial has revealed, uh, does not work in the way that it was initially promised. That is to say, it was approved on the basis of reducing hospitalisations due to COVID nineteen and deaths. Uh, however, uh, new data shows that it does not.
0: Kyle, um, I'm, I'm wondering. Um, so we're uh, we're clear now that um, it hasn't been doing what it was saying on the label it might do. Um, has it done yeah. any? Has it done any harm?
2: It's unlikely that it's done harm because we haven't seen a higher rate of events in that group. There is this concern that's a theoretical concern that because the way the drug works is by making the virus, when it makes copies of itself, have errors, there's at least a concern that it could increase the rate of uh, basically new variants. And that's something a lot of regulators have considered. We probably wouldn't know now that had occurred. Um, but I think on an individual patient level, it's very
1: unlikely it's done harm. Col one of the other questions, stepping back from this, uh, watching the evolution of this occur over a year, is, yep. like you say, they, you know, halfway through the trial, they may well have had you know, good reason to believe that, that this is working. And like yep. you say, we can't exactly... Um, uh, you know, you can't blame the TGA necessarily um, for making the decisions that they did. At what point do we, in the evolution of a medication, have enough evidence to say, yes, it works, or no, it doesn't work, or we need confirmation? It's a, it's yeah. a big question. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, and that's a really hard question to answer at the best of times.
2: When you're dealing with a medication that treats, for instance, heart disease or problems with uh, plaque buildup in arteries and things like that you sort of have a constant enemy and so you can accept evidence a lot more quickly that something is going to generalize than you can something treating a rapidly evolving virus usually for a regulator they would need two trials and the question of when you accept one to me you've got to go a little bit beyond the headline numbers so it's not just we treated this many patients and we've got this many results, and you plug in the standard error, and you say, well, statistically, this is how sure we can be. We need to be a bit more mature than that. And one of the number one things we need to look at is we need to look at the consistency of evidence. So if MOVE-OUT, the drug company trial, had been the exact same size and had the exact same effect, but that effect had been consistent between countries and been consistent between uh, different time periods, then I would have said, yeah, let's approve Review. Let's Mm. approve the drug. But we need to start looking at these red flags about whether something is going to be generalizable rather than just treating it like a statistical problem from a textbook. We so, need to actually look at that difference between countries and go, well, that's a sign we actually do need another trial before accepting this.
1: And I want to just go back to that phrase you used. That, you know, we need to look at the uh, at these trials and and, yeah, and this data in a more kind of granular, more mature, nuanced way. I guess my question is, yeah, how do we at a systemic level stop this from happening you know who does that we need to be is this the the tga or you know on the other hand this is an age-old problem as you say um you know how do we should we be relying on on people like you and your peers who meet and 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 comment on this and how do we incentivize you to to do this more i mean how what's the solution here for for a clinician like me who's time poor who maybe does not have the time to to read these things in great detail um how do we find the truth
2: yeah, well, I think there's probably two parts to answering that. One of those is that this Oxford trial, if, if it had been just another drug company trial, I don't know that we would have gotten this result. There's real value to independent trialists checking medications. Um, rather than just having drug right company funded. And the only answer to that is more funding for independent research. Um, this is, you know, research that would never have been able to be done in Australia. And we've got to recognise there's real value in getting independent people to look at other people's work. Um, so that's sort of the first thing. The second thing in terms of um, time poorness, the, one of the things I just cannot promote enough is the National COVID-19 Evidence Task Force all pandemic, they have played a blinder. They have put out consistently really good advice. Um, and so if you look at their review advice, it was much more cautious than the official TGA approval. So the National COVID-19 Evidence Task Force that puts out those great um, flow charts and those evidence tables, they were much more sceptical about Review. They gave it a very, very weak recommendation, said that it Uh, that the evidence isn't great and they also only ever recommended it for people who were unvaccinated. They reached a different conclusion to the TGA who considered this and said yes it should be approved for vaccinated people. The National COVID-19 Evidence Task Force said that it should only ever be considered for the unvaccinated so I think they're a really great resource.
0: Kyle, um that sounds like a really important learning out of it. I wonder if also the experience overall and, and out of these trials more specifically actually raises concerns for any other treatments or prescriptions along the similar yeah, lines. So, yeah.
2: so it it raises concerns about processes and saying are we sufficiently considering uncertainty in how we approve these drugs? But in terms of particular drugs, we haven't seen this warning sign for any of the other major ones where we see it sort of stop working halfway through. So the other one that was approved around the same time, um, Paxlovid, um, which is a different antiviral by a different company. We also, we've also you know had a look at that data and said, well, did the same thing happen there? Because it also had an interim analysis and it didn't. So it had very consistent effects across both time periods, um, between the first half and the second half. It's something we need to keep an eye on, but I think this is probably, and it does, you know, make us think more generally about how we approve drugs, but there aren't any other drugs out there at the moment that I would have the same sort of concerns about.
1: Kyle, you mentioned uh, right at the top that a lot of this arose through the conversations and connections and work you had with, uh, yep. with, with researchers overseas. Tell me, how did you connect with them? Was this uh, just a... a through the, the, the magic of the pandemic that you uh, that you all aligned or were these pre-existing alliances? Uh, these
2: are purely pandemic.
1: In fact, a lot of these
2: connections are from me being, I don't want to say aggressive with people, but for instance, Ed Mills and Christian Paul, and one of the arms of their massive trial together was looking at ivermectin. And I did a lot of work around figuring out which trials are fake for ivermectin, which ones you know, are just made up and never happened or have they dodged the numbers. And so I wrote to them uh, last year saying, you've run this trial, I'm looking at fraud in ivermectin, I'd like to look at your raw data to check it for fraud, please. (laughs) Um, And it's always a good sign when someone goes, that's a great idea, yeah, you should look at the data for fraud, that's really important work, Uh, which was these guys, and that's sort of how we made that connection. Andrew Hill, um, similar, uh, also uh, got in contact with him because he actually published a meta-analysis saying that ivermectin worked. And we pointed out to him that a lot of his papers that he'd included were actually fake. He retracted his own meta-analysis and redid it and showed it didn't work. And he's become a bit of a crusade against fake research as well. So this is all stuff that started in the pandemic.
1: That's incredible. And I think this is the, the part of the reason why your voice has been very valuable throughout this pandemic is like your uh, fellow collaborators and researchers, yeah. uh, there's good faith here. And the, yep. the master value everyone's striving toward it is uh, to find the truth, not necessarily, you know, my argument versus your argument. Uh, so, yep. Kyle, look, thank you so much for shedding a light on all of this. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Carl Sheldrick, medical doctor and researcher. Speaking about Molnupiravir, the medication that has been approved and used in Australia for COVID-19, but as research shows uh, from just a week ago, does not necessarily work in the way that it was promised. Uh, not necessarily uh, saving lives or preventing hospitalizations. It uh, takes a lot of vigilance uh, to, um, uh, from, from researchers to be able to spot this stuff out in the research. And we're very grateful to have him.
0: Dr Sharma, um, for information, not advice, a um, a listener has texted in and said that they've taken this and have had a a negative experience. So anyone listening at the moment who's now joining the dots for themselves, do they need to take any action?
1: I mean, look, if you're... Based on how this this medication works, if those effects have now faded, I, I don't necessarily think you need to have any long term concern. However, if you think you've had an adverse reaction, then you should absolutely tell your GP, uh, and they should be logging this with the authority. So we need to keep great post marketing data on this. So very important you tell them that it's logged. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: We're very pleased now to uh, have uh, joining us uh, on the phone, the CEO of Australian College of Nursing, um, uh, Kylie Ward. Um, Kylie Ward is the CEO and um, nursing has been in the news uh, quite a bit. You heard us at the top of the show referring to some workforce um issues relating to gps well some uh, very similar issues are emerging uh, for nursing in the health sector so we're very pleased to have kylie ward join us kylie welcome to the show
3: Thank you, my pleasure
0: to be here. Really wonderful to have you with us. Um, our listeners will be aware, um, I mean, many of our listeners work in the healthcare sector, so are directly aware of uh, some of the issues that we'll be talking about. Before we get to those, um, the Australian College of Nursing, can you give us a sense of what the organisation does and where it sits within so many uh, advocate bodies uh, in the healthcare sector?
3: Yeah, most certainly, and and certainly it's great to be talking to an audience that uh, is in our specialty and health related, so a big hello to your listeners. The Australian College of Nursing formed 10 years ago through the unification of the Royal College of Nursing Australia and the College of Nursing, so we've got almost a 75-year history. We are the first and and the professional uh, body. We're also a very significant educator. So we're not the union. We're not the regulator. We are the professional body. And we, uh, from our perspective as a college, we train the largest number of uh, postgraduate students with graduate certificates. We had the tender. We won the government tender to develop the vaccination training. So we've we've educated over 200,000 clinicians. In the COVID vaccinations, we do clinical professional development, policy development. We're a member-based organisation, so we're quite diverse, and um, we represent about one hundred and fifty thousand uh, nurses around Australia and some overseas.
0: It's uh, it's a it's a massive workforce, isn't it? And it's uh, easy for us to forget just how big the nursing workforce is, right?
3: Correct, because there's four hundred thousand nurses in Australia, so our, our membership. Uh, in who we represent in our membership is different but we do speak on behalf of the nursing profession.
0: And the and the training that you referred to that's um, presumably that's training um, and qualification upgrading that nurses do once they're into their career this is not the start that's not sort of training they do at the start of their career is that right to say?
3: correct. We don't work in the undergraduate space, even though we have undergraduate members. So they, they go to universities and taste to get their enrolled in registered nursing. Then uh, we are one of the providers that provide accredited education uh, and leading towards masters, so at that graduate certificate level. And we have 21 specialist courses. For graduate certificates, so whether that's neonatal, neonatal, periop, ICU, primary, and community, digital, there's a whole array of graduate certificates, and uh, but nurses can also get involved in policy development, clinical professional development, wounds, diabetes, and, and then we've got the institute of leadership that heavily
0: invested right. in leadership training. So let's start to join the dots on the relevance of the training um, that nurses uh, undertake um, at any stage of their career and the questions arising around um, the workforce shortages. What do you see as the relationship there?
3: Yeah, look, years ago, uh, medicine subspecialised specialized and I guess nursing and health uh, followed. So, you know, there used to be generalist physicians and surgeons and then we went to a very subspecialty specialty model and nursing you know you think of your wards and your units in a hospital they're all a disease or an organ and so nurses are highly educated and highly specialized in particular specialty areas and whether that be aged care or primary care as well and then we have realistically the philosophy of nursing is holistic so even if a nurse has renal specialty qualifications, they're always still looking at the patient as a whole or whether mental health or... So we really embed the nursing philosophy, which is behavioural and social sciences, as well as that high-end scientific, medical and clinical knowledge. And where we're seeing the gap, obviously every nurse will really need to commit to lifelong education and the vaccination and and COVID is a good example and nurses took up um, learning all they could about the virus. But the other part of it that we're seeing that is, I really think being left neglected over the last few years is the leadership training to be, once you go into management or managing a shift after hours or a team or a unit, the transition from being an expert clinician to managing does require a different skill set and I think that not enough is being done to invest in that leadership and management training uh, so that's
0: where we've identified a bit of a gap and around capability and capacity. So uh, in a, in um, in recent times, you've drawn attention to what you've um, identified as about nine thousand nursing vacancies. What's what is the cause of those vacancies? Is it attrition or is it a lack lack of uptake in the career itself? Some combination of both.
3: Yeah, the recent report that came out about skills priority lists actually uh, identified around 9,000 vacancies. Last October, I called it a a pending nursing workforce crisis, and I and my team had done a bit of an environmental scan, and I called approximately 12,000 vacancies. So I even think that 9,000 is conservative, and that is the largest professional uh, group in demand. But I think that if you look at South Australia, they actually have to advertise positions internally before they go externally. So I think that the market is a bit conservative. Um, but having said that, 9,000, let's say 10,000, once the government puts in the, the aged care legislation that passed to have a uh, registered nurse on every shift in aged care, that's probably around 10,000 more. Registered nurses, we need in the aged care sector and the primary care sector. If we were able to get nurses paid properly and having access to MBS numbers or as for nurse practitioners, I think that then that would create a different market again, too. So, so why is there the, the shortage? Nursing is an incredible profession, but it's for sort the of faint hearted. You're constantly giving above and beyond, you're in demand, it's 24 7 it's not everyone so governments and employers it, need to look after those that choose to do it and I, i'm not really convinced that they are doing
1: that uh, professor what i mean you mentioned that it's a demanding job that said it's always been demanding what's different now
3: it has been demanding but if you think you know back in the 80s and the 90s what has changed now the um you know the aging population the aging workforce but the digital landscape is significantly different the consumer is different the baby boomers require more of healthcare, care but the the pace and the rate of change and the supply and demand so really we haven't invested in the primary care system like we should have and so the demand on the hospitals is Uh, and really the the funding is, is, to me, perverted because it drives occasions of service and and fee-for-service and it drives episodic care rather than values-based care. So I don't think we're doing enough to keep people at home and give people choices to access care, which drives them to the acute sector. And then we've got such an issue with patient flow and demand management, and this is pre-COVID, so COVID just complicated and exacerbated this. You've got uh, short and length of stay, you know, depending on your EDs to look at um, presentations to admissions, but that short and length of stay. There's some nurses that I talk to in the wards are seeing in a 24-hour period three different admissions in one bed. Uh, so by wow. the time you actually are, are looking at getting a history, working through, and then somebody's, you know, moved to another ward or short stay or here or there, it's a massive turnover of high-end demand, so there's not the downtime of a bit of convalescing that we used to see last century, and so it's just this um, almost running on their parasympathetic nervous system. It's just in constant, um, uh, really like adrenals, uh, and in all of in in a lot of the areas now.
1: Professor, I, mean, I just want to go back to the, the vacancies. You said nine to twelve thousand, uh, depending on you know. I mean, we trust your figures. Let's go <laughs> twelve thousand for now. Um, I'm trying to get a sense of how it is that they're calculated. So is it that nurses are are leaving those vacant positions, or or is it, as you said, it's it's the the vacancies are calculated by workload. I mean, with the number of admissions you' you mentioned, uh, there's a certain workforce that's needed for that. So I, I'm trying to get an idea of what that gap is. Is it people leaving the profession or not applying for the profession or just uh, calculated as a basis of the amount of nurses we we need versus what we've actually got?
3: yeah they're all great questions so you've got you've loaded me up with a couple in there let me make sure that i get through them so let me know if i don't please do so that, yeah, yeah and i love it um so the, the the vacancies is really what is um being advertised for a full-time equivalent or part-time equivalent so those nine thousand vacancies uh i'm i can only presume from the skills priority report that they're full-time but so that's right it might take, uh, you know, 15,000 nurses because it's predominantly female and they work part-time to right. in, in headcount or people to fill the vacancies. So the vacancies themselves at any one given time is what's being advertised around the country. Does that actually mean that that's enough nurses? Well, we could debate that all day and you'd have trouble convincing me we have enough nurses. Nurses do not get like our counterparts in medicine, we don't get Tesla leave, we don't get pay or time off to go and study. So unless your employer supports you or funds you, nurses are uh, taking a lot of work home and they're self-funding and taking annual leave or days off to professionally develop. So it's a little bit perverted and unfair from an industrial perspective that we don't get the support that we should with that. And so... For a couple of reasons, the workforce modelling is often historic, and we work to uh, historic budgets and historic establishments rather than looking at what is required now with innovation and uh, the digital platform and consumer demands. So, you do get some pockets of innovation, but the other thing that I will add, and I'm thinking that I'm covering your questions, but let me not, I'm not. The nursing rosters anywhere are only staffed to the delivery of the care required on a shift mm. in the way that it's based. So, you know, let's say an award or an ICU, you know, one bed to get a 24-hour coverage would take 4.7 FTE. But that FTE allocation only covers the person uh, to be at work. Now, you've got all of your leave liability, study leave, sick leave, and so the, tra- the challenge with, nursing rosters anywhere is they put no contingency in for everybody to go on holidays and take time off. So then you're in your, everybody's doing double shifts or you're in your agency or your casual workforce to cover core leave liability. So I've always said that um, organisations should add extra uh, positions to, to cover the leave liability and then if you do have some vacancies, you're not always working down. I was in a hospital last week in Tasmania, about a 100-bed hospital in the northwest, and uh, they are looking to cover 60 to 100 shifts with double shifts every week.
1: Right.
3: So they might not be actually advertising those vacancies, but because they're down... So do they need these 9,000 or 12,000 fare when you're actually burning the workforce out with all these double shifts... then what'll happen is they'll they'll need to leave or go part-time or they'll have had enough and the cycle continues.
0: Kylie, um, we're fast running out of time, and I know you're in high demand this morning with another appointment to go to. Just to to bring us to a close, after hearing so much about the challenges facing the workforce, I wonder if it mightn't be a bad idea if we just give a plug for all the upsides of being a nurse, because there's no argument in the studio here how much we need nurses, but um, we've just rattled off a whole lot of big challenges. What what, what are our big claims for uh, encouragement for those wanting to join the workforce?
3: I'm so proud to be the CEO of the Australian College of Nursing. I am a nurse and have been for 30 years. I'm not giving up on us. Nurses represent the best of humanity. And any, anyone who knows or has been cared for by a nurse uh, really understands that nurses are the backbone of the health system. And I would say to anybody in there, if you need a little bit of time out, but, you know, the college does a lot of advocacy around this, take time out, but... Uh, but what we need to do is invest employers to take better care of people and understand how to do that. But we, we want the best of the best. I don't want anyone to be a nurse. Um, mm. I only want the best of the best because you need to be smart and savvy, but you also need to be kind and strong and compassionate. And so it's, it's a life of service, but it's a great, um, great satisfaction in knowing we make a difference to so many people in so many areas.
0: Wonderful, uh, Kylie. Um, we do need to wrap it up there, but we very much appreciate your time and bringing us up to speed on some of the big challenges facing the workforce and the role of uh, Australian College of Nursing. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Kylie. My absolute
3: pleasure.
0: This is a
1: podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: To close out the show for Pop Goes Your Health, a segment where we take a look at something that's making claims uh, about our health and well-being but may be a little bit dodgy and worth our attention. Pop Goes Your Health this morning is taking a look at urine therapy. Now, Dr Sharma, You you seem a little bit dodgy. That's the criteria for this
1: segment, and you've gone for urine therapy. I think you're really, really uh, stretching out the criteria here.
0: But like a couple of things that we've done in this segment uh, over the course of the year, we're talking about something that is familiar to medical practice, quote-unquote, using the air quotes, medical practice for thousands of years. Drink your urine. It'll cure all sorts of things. Yeah. Look, it's... It
1: does have a certain history, has a a cultural element uh, as well. But, you know, one of the criteria we often talk about is that there's a shred of truth to it. So I'm interested to hear more about it and see if we can find why and what <laughs> well, iota. I'm going
0: gonna, I'm gonna to disappoint you right off the bat. <laughs> I've got, in, in my notes here, I've got a section um, t- labelled the science and there's nothing bl- underneath <laughs> <it>. That's blank. <laughs> not- <laughs> blank. There is no science. And and I guess that's in itself, that that's uh, part of its appeal for our attention because there's no science to it and yet, it's relatively culturally ubiquitous in terms of uh, its use. I, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, my grandfather gave an anecdote when he was in North Africa um, uh, fighting the Nazis. That's how he won. that's uh, how he won. That um, he claimed to have drank his own urine uh, when he was particularly thirsty uh, in the desert. Um, now, I've, I've got no reason to disbelieve him, but, you know, and then we've, we have mentioned Bear Gryllis and the Adventure Series and people drinking their own urine on there it goes um into ayurvedic um medicine Mm. um i i even remember as a kid being told at the beach that if we got stung by a um uh, jellyfish? Jellyfish. You that you pee on it. You uh, pee on the sting and that it solves things. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who got told that story. 100%. Oh,
1: I guess you're right. That does count as urine therapy, I suppose. <laughs>
0: it does. Um, so what are people doing with it? Well, I, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, listening audience, if you do want to spend a Sunday afternoon on YouTube, there's plenty there for you. Let me, let me reassure you. I'm so, sure there's a few other sides too. Uh, right? yeah, right. I did do a little bit of a, a look. I wanted to see, okay, so if people are practicing urine therapy how are they practicing is it just you know (laughs) is any urine good urine Um, well first of all uh, The one consistent thing is it needs to be your own. Oh, right. (laughs) It seems I couldn't find um, any recommendations that any urine would work. It needed to be your own for some reason.
1: I love how even people who practice urine therapy have some standards. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There's more. There's There's some boundaries that won't (laughs) cross.
0: There's some boundaries. Um, It's it's advised that if you do want to um, take up the practice, that um, you should use your first urination of the day, not just any urination throughout the day. It should be your first one. But not just the whole of that urine that um, okay. you, uh, you evacuate in the morning. You should try and get it midstream. Oh, So, so, so not the first bit and not the last bit. Apparently, midstream is where all the nutrition is.
1: Now, this is really funny because uh, as, as GPs, as, as medical doctors, we ask for midstream urine samples all the time. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the idea is that when you start urinating, you know, a, a bit, a lot of that urine is uh, clearing the bacteria or microbes that are right at the end end of your urethra, where the skin is, so that's got bacteria on it. So when we're trying to test for a urine tract infection, we don't want that part, we want just the, the middle of the stream. but but the, So we think that that's where the
0: bacteria are, but they think that that's where the goodness is? Well, apparently it's where the goodness is. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, midstream, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, if you're getting into it, another tip is uh, to eat a diet that's a lot more alkinized than it might otherwise be. Mm-hmm. So largely a plant-based um, diet um, limits your animal proteins and processed foods.
1: I mean, it's a funny
0: thing, isn't it? Like... <laughs> You can see why if someone comes across
1: this therapy and this is one of the consequent recommendations of it, you'd go, yeah, this is a healthy thing because it's telling me to eat more vegetables and less processed foods.
0: Mm, processed foods is in there and also to avoid medications. Okay. Now. I'm out. You're out. I'm out. <laughs> there's, there's your line. We found Dr. Sharma's line. Um, uh, yes, uh, medications. I, I you know, I guess there's a kind of a logic to it. If you setting aside the merits of the urine itself, there would be a logic that if the urine contains your medication, then you are null and voiding the use of the urine. I suppose, and I suppose, yeah, and just, an I suppose the, the
1: metabolites of potentially the medications. I mean, gosh, look, I tell you what, if you, if you are going to drink urine, and I don't suggest you do, yeah. It'd be nice if you haven't got some medication there. So,
0: yeah. Fair enough. So, there you go. You can go forth now if you want to take up the practice. Uh, you've got your uh, four top tips there. Um, uh, can I just say, just cause,
1: you know, because of my medical licence, uh, panel beta was being incredibly facetious there, and I do not endorse uh, the practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the,
0: the confidence with which you said that uh, well, scared me. Can, can it? Well, I... I, I, I Yes. I'm glad you picked up on the facetiousness. Um, but could it do any harm? Could it? You're asking me. Yeah. Well, it's 95% water. Not, 95, yeah, 95%,
1: yeah. If, if that was the threshold, then, uh, my God, a lot of drugs would be going to market. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, by definition, it is stuff that your body needs to excrete. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, for toxins and metabolites uh, and things we don't need, um, not to mention uh, that the concentration of it is such that it doesn't actually have any hydrating qualities either. There is one a little tidbit about urine. Often the claim is made that urine is sterile, particularly midstream urine mm. is sterile, and that's actually something a lot of doctors believe too. It's actually not true uh, because when you test it out in in, in a lab, yes, it doesn't uh, often grow uh, species of bacteria that cause disease but there are other bacteria present in your urine, just ones that don't tend to cause disease. Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't actually have any bugs in it, so it's not as clean as I think people
0: say. Am, am I right? I, I came across uh, a question for you that I thought you might be able to clear up. I'm told in my, my deep investigation um, that uh, in utero the ambiotic fluid uh, contains quite a significant, notable amount of urine.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, and urea compounds, yes, so I
0: suppose right. we could call that to, you're enough of a sort, indeed. To wrap us up, I, I thought I'd leave you with a couple of, uh, of trivial, uh, you know, for pub trivia nights coming up, you know, this sort of thing's bound to come up. Um, the Bible refers to it. What? Yes, yeah. Proverb 5.15, Drink waters out of thy own cistern and running waters out of thine own well.
1: Well, I mean, if it's in that book, I'm doing it. If
0: it's in the book, do it. I'm not doing it,
1: and I don't recommend you do
0: Um Apparently there was a a real bestseller uh, around the mid-century by uh, a naturopath, Dr John Armstrong, sold millions of copies, apparently, a book called The Water of Life, a treatise on urine therapy. It's got quite a history. My favourite little bit of uh, trivia to leave us with is a Saudi police arrested a man because the bottles of urine that he was um, selling, claiming that they were camel urine, were actually his own. Yeah, because that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah, because that would yeah. be crazy. We've got to go. Thanks, Dr Sharma. Thanks to um, all of you out there for joining us this morning. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.